welcome back to For Fintech's Sake. I'm Zach Anderson Pettit, U.S. Content Director at Money 2020, co-founder and hype man for the vSum community, and most of all, your unqualified host. This week, we've got the legend, Steve McLaughlin, founder and CEO of a firm that you've heard of before, FT Partners. FT Partners is the only investment banking firm focused exclusively on the financial technology sector. FT Partners was recently recognized as Dealmaker of the Year and Investment Banking Firm of the Year by M&A Advisor. You know, we read that weekly around here. I'd read a list of their recent deals, but I'm trying to keep those intro, trying to keep these intros shorter. They do a lot of them. Truebill and so, so, so many more. And that's just of late. Without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Steve McLaughlin from FT Partners. How's Miami treating you? Because it's negative six here. Uh, it, it's great. You know, the weather here is amazing right now. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, can't complain. Yeah, you know, I hear San Francisco is a ghost town right now, sadly, because of Omicron and yeah, right down here. It's partly less a ghost town because everyone's here and no one believes we have COVID down here, despite 2.5% of the population gets it every week. <laughs> <laughs> Florida's a Florida's a unique place to be. How what's it been like moving there? I mean, when I think of when I think of Steve, you know a couple years ago, Florida is not really the way that I, I thought of you. Uh, but when, when did you actually move? It was not, was it post pandemic or pre pandemic? It was way pre pandemic. It was uh, late 18. Yeah. Um, and it was really part of a move to just get to the East coast uh, because we have so much business in Europe and sort of Middle East and Africa and all over the world. So I needed to be in a better time zone than San Francisco. And I'm from the East coast. My mother lives out here and comes down to Florida a lot. So I figured, you know, Florida would be a great place to be. And we checked it out. My my wife and I checked it out for a weekend or two. And we said, you know, this is pretty awesome down here. So why not? And then yeah, you couldn't have picked a better place to be, you know, during the pandemic, just because the weather and, and uh, working from home and being outdoors, uh, etc. So it's been great. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're an early adopter. You're one of, one of the few in this world that moved pre pandemic. So I think that should probably be first on your Twitter bio. I mean, you've made some impressive investments. You've done some amazing things in your life, but really you should just be tweeting at Keith for boy and telling him that you were first. I think that's <laughs> exactly. how you should use exactly. your time. Yes. <laughs> well, He's always following. He, he is. He's always following you specifically. No, I'm there you kidding. go. He could be outside um, the house right now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Sitting out there in a car just watching. So take me take me back to the Steve youth. Take me back. You said you're from the East Coast initially. Give me a little bit about like your upbringing. Did you, uh, you know, were you running an investment bank in middle school kind of uh, you know, trading, trading bubble gum for something else and arbitraging something? Yeah, no, I mean, like I was born and raised in Philly, uh, city of brotherly love, a home of Rocky. So, uh, you know, I. Uh, you know, moved around as a kid, you know, we moved to Kentucky, to Virginia, back to Pennsylvania. So kind of moved schools, moved around and, you know, we didn't have much, uh, nothing major growing up, you know, so we had to kind of fend for ourselves. And, you know, I always give my mother credit for instilling a work ethic in me. She, I think when we were four years old, you know, had us like cleaning the house and signing up for chores and you know, three cents for this one, two cents for that yeah. one, you know, uh, and, uh, she'd have the three boys names across 
the top of a piece of paper and all the chores on the left and how many cents you got. And I would just rush, rush around the house doing everything. Probably did a horrible job, but she paid me the two cents anyway. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, like I, 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 uh, um, you know, whatever I was in the Cub Scouts and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, just like had a pretty good work ethic in general. And, uh, um, you know, I tell the story all the time about, you know, painting, painting rocks that I would find white and then painting the neighbor's address on the rocks and then selling the rocks to the neighbors, you know, as a nice oh, address wow. thing for their garden. So, yeah, I mean, we were doing that. We were really young. And then that was before the paper routes uh, and the, uh, you know, all that kind of That's stuff. That's a unique so, one. That's yeah, a unique so, one. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've heard a, a lot of lemonade stands, but I hadn't heard the, you know, the painting, the rocks white. That is a beautiful cost of goods sold. Yeah. You just get the rock from the Creek and you get the paint from the garage and, uh, you're in business, zero cost of goods sold. And, uh, you're making five bucks a rock. It's good. See, we're already giving great advice to founders out here in this exactly. podcast. We're, we're, we're right? making progress yeah, already. 100% <laughs> margins, right? Good business. So, <laughs> And, and so, zero cost of acquisition because, you know, the neighbor's not going to say no to this cute little kid coming up with a free rock with the five dollar exactly. rock. So yeah. what, you know. what was your first job? Like, when did you start working in the in or maybe under the table? But when did you start working, working? First job was probably um, serving food at the local pool. So uh, nice. I worked at curbside or courtside, it was called. And, uh, you know, I would go make the pitas and the meatball sandwiches and and then I would go to the pool uh, and deliver them, you know, and take the order, have my like money belt with my change and my my dollars in there. And, uh, ah. and then I I'd go back and serve all the all the people relaxing at the pool. Uh, and, and I got to play tennis there for free. So uh, so that was pretty cool. And then uh, and then, you know, I got a job at the local movie theater, um, you know, basically as like the popcorn guy. Uh, and then. Uh, you know, making $3 and 35 cents an hour. Uh, I still have my, uh, my paycheck stubs from that, uh, believe it or not. And, uh, and, uh, you know, then it moved up to the, uh, ticket ripping guy and then selling ticket guy. And then I was assistant American dream on Tuesday night, you know, and then, uh, (laughs) assistant manager on Friday night. And then pretty soon had the whole theater, you know, uh, working for me, uh, and was running a couple different theaters, you know, that was high school and college actually. Um, so I worked all the way through college for the most part. Um, went to Villanova. What did you study in college? You studied finance, right? Finance. Yep. I was a finance major. Um, you know, uh, uh, but really wasn't sure I wanted to do banking until yeah. maybe the end of, uh, college, you know, and kind of looked at accounting and finance and general trading and, you know, yeah. economics. So I knew something in business. Um, I looked at commercial banking, um, you name it. And then I kind of settled on investment banking because I wanted to work with the CEOs of these companies. And I wanted to, I think, figured, you know, trading stocks or trading bonds or selling those kind of things was interesting. But I said, wouldn't it be cooler to trade the whole block, the whole company, right? Or massive blocks, you know, and, you know, because of the transactions being so incredibly confidential and only a few people in the whole company would know about it. You're obviously only talking to the CEOs and founders of these companies. And so, you you know, kind of automatically knew you were going to be getting great exposure. The problem was I couldn't get a job. Uh, I was coming out of Villanova looking for a job in 89, um, you know, but in 87 was Black Monday. 
stock market right. cratered. It took a while to come back. And then in 89, there was another crash. And that's when Drexel Burnham and all these other banks went out of business. And um, there was just really no jobs on Wall Street in 90. Um, so I took a job at GE in their financial management program in uh, actually right around where I lived. So I was, you know, I lived around Villanova. I went to Villanova. I got a job after school. So I was kind of like all about, you know, kind of like that whole outside of yeah. Philadelphia area. Was but that Jack Welch days or what's that? Was that Jack? Was that Jack Welch? Sorry, I cut you off. Was that Jack Welch days or previous no, pre, that was pre Jack Welch? Full-blown Jack Welch days. I got yeah. to meet Jack when I was there. Nice. So I was on this thing called the financial management program, which was their like, you know, high end training program for finance kids. And yeah. it was a two, two and a half year program. And I was able to kind of graduate early and get on this thing called corporate audit staff. Um, and that was sort of the, uh, um, kind of as good as it gets at GE in terms of like 120 people on a, you know, kind of internal kind of like, yeah. you know, SWAT team. Uh, yeah. It wasn't so much being an auditor, but you were kind of like going into different business units, parachuting in to whatever the biggest problems were in the whole company. So I spent, you know, two or three months at each of like eight different GE businesses during a course of a year plus. And, um, you know, I was in Evendale, Ohio with the aircraft engines. I, they gave me a whole plant to like restructure. Um, wow. You know, yeah, we did, an, you know, a whole review at GE Capital. We did some stuff at GE Medical Systems, GE uh, Appliances, GE Motors. I spent time in uh, middle of nowhere, Indiana. Um, so, yeah, lots and lots of different assignments. But that was incredible experience for me. Yeah. Right. I, the funny thing is I love GE and it was it was it was. You know, think of people think of GE today like Borders Books or something like that, where it's like old school. But like back then, it was a king of the world and it was a great training program. Uh, and it was 24 seven. I, I remember working 24 seven there like a banker. And, and, um, but, you know, they would put you in classes. You go to, you know, classes every, you know, week. Uh, there was testing. It was, it was a great program. But I, I knew as soon as I got there, I didn't want to be there long term. I didn't really didn't want to work for a big company like that. And, yeah. um, and uh, so I applied to Wharton when I was actually at GE um, and got rejected actually in the first you know go around. And, uh, and they were like, look, you've got two weeks of work experience. Like maybe you should work a little <laughs> bit more. Uh, That's like, yeah, wild. They said that coming from GE though. I mean, that like, what was that, was the Six Sigma program a thing then, or was it called something? I'm guessing maybe no, it wasn't called they, that they, at they that point. They developed that maybe on the back end, me being there. They had something called workout. Uh, when I was there, that was the big mantra of Jack Welch was workout. Like how do we empower the employees to eliminate, you know, useless work. And so it was all about yeah. process improvement. Um, and so there was all sorts of stuff around that. But they hadn't really gotten into the Six Sigma, you know, stuff. Still, though, later. it was the place that was the place to be. I can't believe. I mean, it makes me happy to hear you got rejected because it gives me hope in life. But uh, you know, <laughs> other than that, I'm a little surprised by it. You know, I mean, I was only two weeks on the job when I applied to Wharton the first time around. And then uh, they said, oh, you literally, better. you yeah, meant literally, literally. literally. <laughs> I thought you uh, meant that figuratively. And, okay. uh, <laughs> yeah. And so they said, you should apply when you finish your program. So I reapplied. And, and I actually got in, thank God. So I left GE to go to Wharton and uh, got there in 93, graduated in 95. In the middle of that summer job was a summer associate at Goldman Sachs in the financial institutions group. So, and that's how I kind of got into banking and that's how I got into financial services. And it was that summer that I 
randomly got staffed on a quasi fintech company. It was called Account Portfolios. It was a debt collections tech company. So I had to go research everything about debt collections uh, and credit enabled technology and um, looked up all the companies like Equifax, Experian, TransUnion and so on and so forth. And so that was really the beginning of uh, fintech for me in middle of 94. So I came back in 95 full time. They still hadn't sold the company because uh, it was a little uh, small little deal that wasn't really meaningful to anybody, which was also showed me that like some of these smaller deals that were kind of in the tech space that were way below the radar of Goldman Sachs proper and the fig group because they were used to doing these 20 billion, $30 billion deals all the time. Uh, this The tech side just got totally ignored uh, for the most part. And then we ended up forming a group eventually to sort of cover all the dot-com companies that were coming up. So that's, anyway, that's the whole genesis. You got me from baby to, uh, you know, baby banker uh, in 1995. I love it. So, so what was the thing at Goldman or like, was there a, maybe not a straw that broke the camel's back or anything like that, but was there kind of a moment that you remember when you decided like, I'm going to go fucking do this thing and like yeah. jump off the bridge and build well, it? You know, it was, you know, the dot com burst, if you will, you know, you had the boom and the bust and yeah. uh, I was lucky to survive tons of, you know, layoffs and all that kind of stuff. And I was sitting in my cube one day or my office and, you know, I, I, uh, I still remember sitting there and thinking, you know, I had to go do this on my own because the bonus levels were super low um, and there were almost no deals, but there was some smaller deals that I figured I could go get, right? And with a, as a sole proprietor and with two employees or a half an employee, um, you know, that would be, that would be pretty, pretty lucrative. Um, and probably the straw that broke the camel's back more so than even that was because there wasn't a lot going on in tech deals, they said, we want you to go back and work on these big public company deals, right? It was go back and cover uh, Wells Fargo. I got put on the Wells Fargo team. Like I was, I got put on the countrywide team and I was going to these meetings. And even as a reasonably senior VP at the time, um, you know, I was like carrying the books and the fifth guy at the conference table. And I was not very important anymore. Um, and I said, like, I really, this is a stark difference between what I was doing, which is running all my own deals and running a small group in fintech. And, uh, so I figured, uh, I could just break out and do it on my own. So I literally sitting in my office at Goldman Sachs, went to companycorporation.com and for $99, it kind of started typing in names and came up with FT partners, financial technology partners, and it was available, the URL and the, and the, uh, and the name LLC. And so uh, I did that, I think it was in October um, of 2001. I didn't leave for a couple months after that. But um, yeah, so if, if you go online somewhere, it'll say, yeah, incorporated October 2001. So, and that was, uh, it was also right after 9-11. So the market was even yeah. worse at that time. So I think I just got it going on in my head that this wasn't getting any better. And so let's go do something entrepreneurial. Yeah. The name of the company is a little bit prescient. In 2001 or 2002, had anyone said the word fintech yet? No, I don't know. If, I mean, there's. I think there's like some book somewhere someone found in a library where someone did at one point in time say fintech. But, um, sure. but in the world that I was living in, no. Goldman back then, and I think still to this day, calls it fig tech, uh, which I find hilarious. Um, what is fig is financial institutions group. 
and then tack, oh. they tagged on to that. So, um, and, heaven forbid um, Goldman do anything that is not just created by Goldman. Exactly. So, <laughs> but, you know, it's sort of a sign of, 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 of the times, I guess, back then. But yeah, no, financial technology was what we called it. And we didn't even call it fintech till, you know, years later. And uh, I think we might have been one of the first, but you know, it's hard to lay claim on that. I still want to go back and look at my emails and see when's the first time we ever typed that word and whether we did invent it or not. But we were probably one of the most early firms that sort of said, let's build any kind of a company around financial technology as a sector, um, as a banker, I should say. There was a, um, yeah, lots of fintech companies back then in the dot-com days. But um, so anyway, that was, that was 2001, 2002. And yeah. um you know, as the story goes, it was kind of done out of my apartment. I lived on Vallejo Street in uh, Pack Heights. I had a tiny apartment underneath a bunch of other people's, you know, uh, and then kind of like the basement unit of, of, of a house. And um, uh, so that's where we really got it going. And, and uh, you know, somehow or other, it, it uh, has ended up working out. Yeah. Well, I, I normally think basement unit when I think FT partners, I think basement unit, uh, you know, boutique advisory firm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> we were on the ground floor, literally. Uh, we were underground. Uh, so yeah, that was a good one. Garden was a good one. So yeah. let's, let's take it back even not like back in time, but back to kind of first principles. I, I pride myself on asking dumb questions that I'm sure at least one of my listeners has. Uh, so, so what does, and, and this is actually probably uh, hilariously a, a question that a lot of people have. What does an investment banker do from day to day? When should one think about engaging with one? Just, you know, talk, talk yeah. us through the first principles of it. And I'd love to understand also maybe what your life was like as an investment banker and how you functioned inside of a Goldman versus how, you know, FT partners functions kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I could answer that and take week a week to explain all that. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if I say I'm a doctor, like, what does that mean? Am I a podiatrist right. or brain surgeon or back? Right. You know, um, a bank uh, investment bank is the same thing. There's a hundred different versions of it. Lots of different firms, lots of different types of deal structures and, and places. But for us, we're obviously very focused on fintech. So we're very sector focused. Uh, and probably the most important thing to know about us is we are absolutely and positively only focused on working for founders and CEOs of mostly private companies, but the job is essentially on the selling side, right? So when I say that, it's really important. So the two or three things that we do are all very similar and kind of like the same thing. So we're, uh, if I get really specific about it, we help a lot of private companies raise a lot of capital and that's really an important part of their journey because it protects their dilution and helps them advance their businesses. Um, sometimes we'll be selling the whole company, right? So for example, we just sold a company called Truebill to Rocket Mortgage for close to a billion five. Um, and, uh, and back to the capital raising, we just raised $1.2 billion for Revolut at 33 billion um, in Europe. So, you know, you get big time capital raising, um, big M&A deals. And then the third thing we do is help companies um, on IPOs. So, you know, once in a while, uh, a company want to go public. And while they're going to use a, a major underwriter for their, you know, full-blown advice, we'll kind of come in as the overlay manager to do an IPO advisory assignment. Um, in the realm of selling companies, that includes selling companies to SPACs, 
um, as well as strategics or LBO firms. So whoever the counterparty is, um, it could be lots of different types. And then a lot of times the assignment sort of says, we don't know what we want to do. Maybe we'll raise private capital. Maybe we'll go for a SPAC. Maybe we'll sell the company to a strategic, or maybe we'll take strategic money for a minority of the company. But, but the fundamental thing is really important to understand for those listeners out there. If you were to go talk to a banker from, say, Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan, who are all, you know, great firms, it'd be interesting to sort of ask them, you know, hey, name the last 10 transactions you worked on. And it's a bit of a trick question because they're going to answer, well, you know, I was on the buy side of Square buying Afterpay, or I did a spin out of XYZ PayPal from eBay, or I was on the buy side of, you know, Visa Plaid when it fell apart, you know, or I raised $400 million of debt for Jack Henry, right? And these are their transactions, but only one in like 10 of the things that they say, or maybe one in 20 is like, oh, I raised private capital for XYZ founder company, right? But if you ask us what's the last 10 things we worked on or last 500 things we worked on, every single one of them is representing a founder in some kind of a selling situation. We're not spinning off companies. We're not doing the buy side, et cetera. So we can be very, very loyal to the founders of these companies. And so therefore, you're not going to find us, you know, sort of selling Truebill, but then the next week trying to get hired by Rocket on the buy side of some other deal. So we don't really... Right cater to or count out to the to the big strategics right so we can actually help you go and sell things to them uh we don't get hired by vc firms to go do buying projects so a lot of our banker competitors make most of their money by representing um you know big buyers on deals or doing big financings for buyers on deals so it makes it very hard for someone at one of those big banks to negotiate on a founder's behalf against a major private equity firm or a major VC or a major corporate because they're seeking their revenue most of the time from those parties and they have repeat relationships. So you really need somebody that's totally independent and totally on the sell side. Independent doesn't mean um, like you could have, we could be an independent firm, but we could be working on buying and selling. But the fact that we're only on the selling side. So the other really important point of what we do of being on the sell side all the time is you develop certain muscles, right? If you're a, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, a 40 yard dash, you know, kind yeah. of person, you're going to develop really, really strong muscles to do well to 40 yard dash. One yeah. of our clients uh, is a, like a pro ping pong player. The guy's got a muscle uh, right here that you've never seen on any other human being before because he's constantly flicking the, the, the paddle. So you, you get different muscles for doing different things that are highly acute to that particular sport. And so we've done that in the private capital raising and the selling of companies and spacking of companies and IPOing of companies. And so that's a very, very specific set of things that we do. And the whole point of it is you, you shouldn't really hire a banker at all if you're going to hire someone that's sort of a jack of all trades, but doesn't really do what you need done. And so we are that firm that does what you need done if it's one of those things. Um, we're not the firm to call if you want to spin off a big division or you're selling uh, a small division of a company in a, you know, um, uh, in a spin out transaction. But we are the, the company to call if you're selling stock or selling your company. And so, so we've perfected over 20 years. How do you do that really, really well? And, and how do you achieve 
great valuations for founders and CEOs and the backers of those companies. So that's really the claim to fame for FT has been, yes, you guys are great at, at you know, you know, financial technology, you're, you're everywhere, you publish all this research, you know the space really well, we can talk about it for days, whether it's crypto or lending or capital markets tech, but there's now a lot of people that do know fintech, right? Um, it's just the, the intersection of people that know fintech well and that are also amazing at selling companies and raising capital. That's that's a null set um, other than us, in our opinion. And so um, that's that's kind of where we where we really differentiate ourselves on the execution quality of what we're doing. Um, and, you know, one fun fact is we don't have anybody at the company that calls on potential clients. So everything we do is a repeat client or a referral from some other client that told some other CEO that we did a good job on their deal. And that's a hundred percent of how we win business. Um, and uh, that has become kind of a passion for us is to keep that going. So, so anyway, I'm not trying to sell everyone on FT partners, but you ask what we do, what we do is very specific versus say what a Goldman or JP Morgan or a, you know, a center view or a Molus and company or a, catalysts do they they do very different types of things that would be ir- irrelevant uh in terms of the frequency of the things they're doing versus us that makes sense yeah, no i mean it, it does make sense and i'm glad you explained it that way because one of the things i was hoping you were going to kind of hint at and get into was some of the potential conflict and some of the potential uh i guess it's just like a following of the money kind of thing right like when you think about the incentives and your incentives are very clearly aligned with the founder, right. as you just said and outlined. But I think there's maybe some situations where you might not be aligned or there may be some some not not conflict in the like legal way, but conflict in like the human way with VCs, as an example. Like I've definitely heard some VCs say you don't need to talk to an investment banker, oh. you know, yeah, things, yeah. things along those lines. So what do you what do you say to that? Kind of what's your perspective on that? We, we hear that all the time and I find it quite um, on the one hand, humorous, um, on the other hand, sort of, um, you know, uh, very, very important um, element of, of, of how we built our business, right? The humor part is, of course, VCs would not really want, you know, a target company that they're trying to invest in to have a great advisor who had access to thousands of investors and knew all the precedent valuations and had a reputation of setting world records on, on value. Um, you would never want your opponent to have, you know, someone like that. I think though, the, the topic gets a little bit confused because I think sometimes I think they're right. If you hire the wrong advisor, you're probably better off without an advisor, right? If you hire the right advisor, you're definitely better off with that advisor than not. And I think that the Valley, uh, it confuses the things uh, that are really important. And I think, like I said, they're right if, if, if the question is, should you hire someone uh, and you're hiring the wrong person, right? Um, because there's a lot of like, I think, pattern recognition out there where a company goes around, tries to raise capital, and for whatever reason, it can't, usually because it overpriced itself or because it doesn't have a great business model. And a lot of those companies will often go and hire bankers, right? And so the, the VCs are seeing the deal for the second or third time. And- Mm-hmm. They get a little bit of pattern recognition that, okay, when these kind of bankers show me deals, I can kind of tell already they're already shop deals or maybe not great companies or they're over asking on price, 
right? And so I agree. In that situation, um, you know, the VCs would rather not see the banker there. I'd say we've built the firm over 20 years to be the one firm, I think, that has completely broken down that barrier. And VCs, even though they know they may pay up a little bit, are happy to see us on the other side of the transaction. Because what we've done is we said, look, we're going to screen companies to work with the best companies or some of the best companies, right? And, and when we do, we make sure that those companies are incredibly transparent and explaining the business model. So we're making sure the numbers are perfectly explained, the, you know, whether it's a cohort analysis or whatever. We've got data scientists on our team, financial forensic experts. So we're providing enormous amount of information very quickly to a, to a, a perfect audience of investors and they can get up to speed like that. I won't say the name of the company or the name of the VC, but this has happened multiple times where VCs have been looking at companies and said, even though I might pay more, you need to hire FT partners because they will at least get your company ready to be shown to someone like me. And I can actually digest it because it's going to take me three months to ask all these questions. And by then you're going to get tired of me or I'm going to get tired of you. So when we go out to market, it's, um, it's giving crystal clear information to the investors. And with that information, they can feel higher confidence level in the business that they're actually investing in or buying and might be able to pay a little bit more for it because of that. Or maybe they don't like something about it and it's not for them, but they're getting the crystal clear information. So I, I'd say, um, you know, there was, a, I guess, a, a Twitter feed. I, I forget it was maybe it was Harry Stebbings or someone had a, a Twitter storm about, you know, um, anyone that hires a fundraising advisor, you know, uh, is crazy. Oh, and I think it was her. Yeah, it, it was, was super general. Too. Like, yeah. Unbeknownst to me, five or six people like were chiming in unless it's FT partners. Right. And you can go to that Twitter stream and see that. And I sort of said, hey, thanks, guys. You know, I really appreciate that. It warms my heart because I'm, I spend my life defending against that. You would think after 20 years of, you know, doing killer capital raises that people would finally understand. But but I think I, I do think I'm sympathetic to the argument. Uh, but I, I also think. Look, founders have a lot going on. Founders are not supposed to be instantly connected to every VC in the Valley. Right. And back when all you had to do was, you know, theoretically drive up and down Sand Hill Road to get your capital, that was one thing. But now, you know, there's investors all over the world in every corner of the earth. You know, how many people wake up in the morning knowing NASPERS, right, which is a South African-based uh, public company that has billions of dollars to invest in private companies. We have almost no body in, in, in Silicon Valley, including the Silicon Valley elite knows NASPERS that well, right? They, they made a $240 million gain or something on their purchase of 10 cent stock. And now they're deploying that, right? Or how many people know, uh, you know, Falcon edge, which is now renamed itself, uh, you know, to alpha wave, right? I mean, they just invested in two of our clients, hundreds of millions of dollars, but, um, no one in Silicon Valley really knows who they are, right? Who knew who Code 2 was seven years ago, right? Until they invested in Snap. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, um, that's true. But we can get to the CEOs and founders of all of these firms around the world because they're kind of calling us and saying, oh, my God, hey, how did I miss, you know, uh, the billion-dollar Revolut deal? How, can I get in your next deal? How did I miss the, yeah. you know, Divi capital raise, you know, and, uh, right. and missed a, a, a huge return there in a short period of time? So we get a lot of people calling us and saying, can I get in your guys' deal flow? So 
you know, um, we've tried to turn the tables on an argument, but I, I can kind of sympathize with it. But like I said, I sympathize more with the founders of these companies who, you know, there's no way they could have anywhere near the reach that someone like we would have with 250 professionals working, you know, most of us for a good part of 20 years. And we have a dedicated private capital markets team that is spending literally 100% of their time, 10, 12, 15 people, you know, getting to know and communicate with all these VCs around the world. So yeah, it's virtually impossible. Um, there's also, like I'll say this, you know, sometimes VCs are quite, um, I mean, they're in one game in life, buy low, sell high, right? Yeah. So a lot of times you'll see a situation where a company's doing really, really well, and the VCs will say, you shouldn't hire a banker. Well, the next thing you know, they're also trying to put more money in the company. So sometimes the advice isn't particularly genuine, uh, because they say, don't hire a banker, you should be able to find the money on your own. Well, they want to put the money in themselves. So the last thing they want is someone, you know, pushing up the price and bringing all this transparency and demand to the company. So you, you, you I have seen that, right? Where the very people, you know, say don't hire a banker are the ones that want to put the money in. And so you, sometimes you do get some mixed advice from your board. Um, it's rare, but I've seen that, you know, be part of the argument. Um, but look, we, we have so many great VC relationships, but you know, we work for the founders and CEOs of these companies for the most part. And so, and by the way, I'll caveat all this with saying once in a while, we will do a buy side assignment. So if a client hires us to sort of sell their company or raise capital for them or whatever, and they want to go make acquisitions, then we'll do that. We typically don't even charge for that acquisition work that we're doing. And occasionally, you know, a very large firm will ask us to work on something very, very micro period of time. Like Google hired us when they were looking to make an investment in Credit Karma uh, because we had a lot of experience in that space. So we did a micro assignment for them. They put money in at 500 million. Of course, it sold for 7 billion. They made a fortune. Um, and we've worked on a couple other buy sides, but you can count them on like one or two hands. Uh, so so that's that's a bit of the, the story there. It's interesting. I mean, it... it, it it's, it sounds analogous to the first work that you did in financial technology in terms of financial technology for debt collection. Like I'd think about True Accord today and right. like there's some horrible, I mean, I'm sitting in Kansas City, right? Like the payday loan capital of the world. We yeah. are renowned for horrible debt collectors that will beat the hell out of your phone and make you feel horrible and tear apart your emotions and everything else. It's better than like and then your kneecaps though. So it's, it's advanced. Yeah. yeah. It's a step yeah. up from the mafia, but yeah. you know, there's a re there's a reason Scott Tucker's in jail. Um, but then there's true accord, right. And also here in Kansas city, great at least company. with an office here in Casey, great company, not your average debt collector. Right. And you could understand how the whole world would say fuck debt collectors, but then you meet true accord and you're like, Oh, well, maybe they're not too bad. Right. right. So I, you kind of get to, I get why, and you kind of even alluded to it, but like you get why a Harry Stebbings would say something like that because you see enough bad actors over and over again. And even in KC, like, it's so hard to raise a seed round, so hard to raise a series A around here unless you're really damn good, unless you're a Sandy Kemper, a C2FO kind of person where, yeah. you know, there's there's folks that'll, try, you know, give you access to a million dollars in capital, take 10% of it. And it's like the least helpful, like just horrible capital that you could find in your entire life. So anyways, yeah, you yeah. get it, but this is why I want to talk to you. And this yeah. is why I want to put you up on the pedestal. So people actually understand the, these nuances. Yeah. Um, By the way, Harry so you, responded to my, my, my tweet on that. And, and it, it was like, Hey, you know, you know, you're good, whatever. So we love, we love Harry and uh, maybe we'll come on his, uh, his show one of these days too. 
You should. Yeah, that that would be that would make a lot of sense for you. Yeah. And it would be a lot more focused than this show. So he would probably actually, you know, he'd have very specific questions to ask you and time frames and such. And we're just he wouldn't have as good a hair uh, or, or the whole like get up you got. Oh, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me, Steve. That's <laughs> that's that's, that's going to carry me through the rest of my day. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so you alluded to Truebill earlier, and this is one of the things that I really want uh, wanted to ask you, just so that listeners can really wrap their head around it. But one of the things you said was get your company ready, right, for whatever yeah. that is. If that's the next capital raise, if that's the exit, whatever it is. At what point do you start like building that relationship? At what point did Harun and Yaya reach out and say like? Hey, we need, we need help with this or yeah. maybe not even at what point did they, what point should they have? And at what point should founders think about kind of starting yeah. that conversation? I mean, I'll put, I'll put that specific situation aside just due to confidentiality, but I would say we Fair. get the calls <laughs> at all points in time, two years ahead of time, uh, two days ahead of time. Right. Meaning, um, you know, we have at least two companies right now that are calling us saying, I have three term sheets. What do I do? Do I call other people? Do I take these terms? There's some funky terms in here, whatever the case may be. Get in here. You're hired tonight and we need to work all weekend on this. And we do get that from time to time. And and that's a great situation because we can add a ton of value in a very short period of time um, and, and mm-hmm. probably um, more so than most people think. Right. And it's not just on maximizing value, but it's finding the right investor, getting the right terms, getting you know founders the right level of like top up and things like that. Um, which has become a, a, a separate topic about you know how founders are sort of fighting back and clawing back you know some equity over the course of time for their great performance, um, and we've helped a lot of founders with that. But like so, we'll get, come in like right when there's term sheets on the table sometimes, um, and we'll come in sort of a year ahead of time or six months ahead of time. The more time we have, the more sort of prep we can do and things like that. And we're kind of known for digging in pretty hard on companies and sort of helping them tell their story the right way. And I have this analogy that I use and sometimes I laugh about it, but sort of, you know, when you're looking at a business, you know, investors want to look at it with a microscope in terms of what have you done? What are you doing today? What are you doing tomorrow? Right. And they usually spend like 90% of their time on that and maybe like 5% of time looking at the medium term and 5% of time looking at the long-term vision. Right. And part of that is because they only have so much time they're going to look at any given deal. And usually the companies do a, you know okay job of teasing you about why it's a good business. But then the next layer is like there's a thousand questions, right? And that takes up all the oxygen in the room, right? Um, what we try to do is say, look, let's look at the business with a microscope, but let's take out the little film and just show it to you. Okay, here's what it is. Let's take one day and get all the microscopic stuff out of the way. Let's tell, now let's start looking at the you know, call it the binoculars, right? Or the Hubble telescope and bring all this stuff that's normally not in focus. You can't see, you know, uh, what microscopes see. You can't see what uh, binoculars see. You can't see what Hubble telescope sees. But if you look into it, you can, right? And you can bring it all into focus and a lot of complexity, right? You know, the 20-year story for a company or 10-year story is a very different way of talking and thinking, and mindset than the microscope side of the story. And the, in, the stuff in the middle is very different than the, the long and the short story as well. So we sort of try to help these companies do the right work and right level of thinking to get the investors through the microscope stage very quickly so that they've got 90% of their time left to talk about the next five years and the next 15 years after that. 
And that's where a lot of the enterprise value comes through. And I think that's where we really differentiate ourselves in, in helping people do that, right? You know, I can say companies that we've raised half a billion to a billion dollars for were looking really only at the microscope, right? And they weren't doing a great job of telling the big story. Um, and um, investors, I think, like that. I mean, they're going to pay, like I said, a little bit more because of it, but most likely they're going to feel more comfortable realizing this is this company is really going to be big and FT's done a great job of telling that story. So, um, but that's the work. You can't do all that work in a weekend, right? right? So you need, call it a month or two, lead time would be ideal. Um, but if it was only a weekend, I still think we could do a good job sort of quickly getting the data together, quickly figuring out, are they telling the right long-term story? And within a week, be up and running and we do that all the time. And so uh, we have a company in the UK right now, literally called us the other day, two term sheets on the table. And we have a team right this minute. We kicked off this morning at 6.30 a.m. my time because they're in the UK. They they did me uh, they did me right and only did it at 6.30 in the morning instead of 5.30, which sometimes happens. And, uh, so nice and they're working so all day nice. today. They'll be working all weekend um, on on this. And, and by the way, I should and I will talk and brag about our team all the time because you know, we have so many amazing employees at the firm, every one of them, by the way, uh, and we're growing and growing. But, you know, I have to say, you know, we have all the stuff I'm talking about doing these, you know, miracle transactions, these great preps and all this kind of stuff. I'm not doing it right. Um, right. I have a lot of ideas, but we have an incredible team that's doing all this work and we dedicate to be 5, 10, 15 people to a project. And they're working with that client, you know, night and day to make sure that that goes really, really well times X number of deals a year in six continents or seven continents. It's, uh, it's incredible, you know, kind of what we get done in a given year. And I just have to sort of bow down and thank my employees who, uh, my team members, uh, who have helped build this company and, and who, uh, we'd be nothing without. So, uh, you know, and, and our clients love them too. They're always trying to hire them and, and, uh, you know, because they become almost like part of the family. Uh, and uh, so we have a lot of clients, a lot of employees that are working for a lot of clients, actually. So but please don't hire employees. We, we love them. We'd like to keep them. So I will say I have noticed uh, some quality FT partners alums as I've gone through the industry in my time. Um, but yeah, They're luckily around. I'm not. Well, I am hiring, I guess, but I won't. I won't uh, we'll, we'll we'll maintain our relationship. We'll be good. Uh, but that's actually a great yeah. transition transition. I can't speak transition into uh, kind of just wrapping things up. So you mentioned that you're growing. I wanted to give you a chance to kind of say a little bit more about maybe where you're hiring. I know you're really leaning into content. Any anything yeah. that you want to kind of put out into the ether for folks to get in touch, uh, both in terms of, you know, how to get in touch to potentially do business with you, but also hiring and working with, with, yeah. and for it's you. a good, great question. I mean, we're, we're a 250 person company. We'll probably be 400 people in a couple of years. And, you know, in an odd way, we're hiring in every single function. We're literally hiring in finance, accounting, legal, um, HR, um, marketing, ecosystem development, um, um, research, content, data science, uh, you know, and obviously on the banker side, we're hiring around the world. So mostly in San Francisco, New York, and London, um, and uh, at all levels, you know, first year analysts out of college, um, MBAs, MDs. Um, it's all very curated and carefully done, but we are 
open to hiring at pretty much every level and every position in the whole company because it's all kind of expanding um, kind of in synchrony, so to speak. So you need people everywhere. And um, I would say uh, the, the one area that we're really excited about is our equity research team. So we're kind of stealthily building um, an equity research team, which we've never had. We've always worked for the private companies. And it's not because we want to go work for public companies, but we get a lot of demand from the buy side saying, hey, look, you guys know the space better than the big banks. And quite frankly, some of the research analysts at the large banks are covering 35, 40 stocks. And you can't cover 35, 40 stocks well. So you end up covering everything sort of mediocre. And so we want to build sort of the most deep, you know, fintech research in the world. And so we're building a team. We hired uh, the lead uh, fintech analyst from Goldman Sachs and one of the leads from Alliance Bernstein, Sanford Bernstein, one of the top research firms in the world covering fintech and payments. And so we're building a team around them to sort of become the preeminent provider of research and the equity side of things. So that's a little bit of a sneak peek of something that we're doing and we could do another podcast on sometime if you want. But, um, but look, it's all about the clients and the team. And so the only metric we have internally to judge any of our bankers is how happy the clients are. So if they're super happy, I'm happy and everyone's, uh, everyone's happy. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's the main, the name of the game. I love it. Well, yeah, I'm going to have to come visit you in Miami or we're going to have to, we're going to have to do this in person and we'll have to do a check in kind of a little further down the road. There's, I didn't get to ask you about SPACs. I didn't get to ask you about perspective on direct listing versus IPOs. There's so many nerdy things that we didn't get to cover. So we're going to have to do it next time. I love it. Yeah. I love it. And then, uh, yeah. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate you. My pleasure. Be safe out there. Thanks for joining the conversation, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our time with Steve at FT Partners. Jump into the show notes to learn more and find out about Steve and FT. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and, you know, compartmentalize because it's, it's a crazy world. Just, just keep going. One foot in front of the other. I believe in you. I love you. We'll see you next week.